the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports regarding the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as educating the general public more about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, welcome back to another informative hour of what's new in the news in terms of mental health. And uh, this podcast was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, October 21st, 2015 at 7 p.m. on americaswebradio.com. Hope that you've been doing well. Hope that we haven't been feeling too stressed. And uh, here's a hint for those of you who dread the shorter days when we turn the clocks back in a couple of weeks. The week or so before we do that, start going to bed 15 minutes earlier each night. And once you get used to that, it will make the adjustment not so drastic. Well, as far as our topics for this week, uh, I seem to have come across several articles that somehow or another relate to dietary issues and mental health. Uh, I often get asked, well, uh, in order to feel well in terms of emotionally and and mentally, uh, is there a certain diet I should follow? Should I eat a certain way? And the answer is resoundingly yes. Uh, Regular and long-time listeners on the show will be familiar with the research that uh, I've discussed on the show regarding healthy diet equals healthy mind. Uh, diet rich in fresh fruits and vegetables with lots of antioxidants. And very, very recent research has found that the more fish you eat, the less depression you have, and uh, the less processed meats and fast food you have, the less depression you have. But tonight we're going to get into some more specifics uh, about aspects of nutrition and mental health, a few different articles about that. I have some other mental health news as well, if we have time to get to it. Uh, But since uh, there were a series of these articles, I thought, well, let me present them to you first, just to discuss those and uh, let you know if I think there's any pearls of wisdom in there, any things that it would benefit you to follow. So first of all, we have a study that says that fat and sugar cause bacterial changes that may relate to loss of cognitive function. 
Uh, a study at Oregon State University indicates that both a high-fat and a high-sugar diet compared to a normal diet causes changes in our gut bacteria that appear related to a significant loss of what's called cognitive flexibility, which means the power to adapt and adjust to changing situations. Now, cognitive function, of course, in a broad sense, refers to things like memory, concentration, attention, focus, and so being able to adapt your thinking and adjust to changing situations, therefore, is cognitive flexibility. Rather interesting that diet, which we can understand might alter our gut bacteria, would then translate into cognitive problems. Uh, I have, um, I mean, I recall talking about some articles uh, on the podcast a while back where a lot of researchers are increasingly thinking that the normal bacteria which inhabit our intestinal tract not only relate to proper gastrointestinal functioning, but so many other aspects of how we function, including the brain. And that would include not just cognitive function, but mood and emotional functioning as well. It's a fascinating concept to think that someday it is even possible that a doctor, including one such as myself, would recommend or prescribe a certain probiotic to help someone deal with things like mood or anxiety disorders or cognitive problems. Sounds far-fetched, but it wasn't all that long ago that someone who proposed that ulcers are caused by a bacteria in the stomach instead of increased stomach acid or uh, the wrong types of food or beverages causing ulcers, uh, that was once thought to be hogwash as well until it was proven to be the case. Uh, so we definitely know that bacteria, good and bad, in the GI tract can cause consequences. It's also far from a revelation that a diet high in fat and sugar isn't going to help you feel well cognitively, right? Uh, garbage in, garbage out. If you eat poorly like that, you're not going to feel well mentally, not going to function well mentally, as opposed to if you leave the fat and sugar out of your diet. But as far as a direct mechanism for this, linking it to gut bacteria, that that is interesting. So I thought I would bring it to you, see if there are any insights we can glean from it. Now, as far as the negative impact of diet on cognitive flexibility, the effect was most serious on the high sugar diet, and that also that diet showed an impairment of early learning for both long-term and short-term memory. The findings of this research are consistent with some other studies about the impact of fat and sugar on cognitive function and behavior, and suggest that some of these problems may be linked to alteration of the microbiome. That is the name for 
the complex mixture in the digestive system of about 100 trillion microorganisms. And actually the microbiome includes not just the bacteria in our gut, but the bacteria that normally inhabit many areas of the body, the skin, what have you. Now this research was done with laboratory mice, not with humans. Uh, they had them consume different diets and then had them face a variety of tests, such as water maze testing to monitor changes in their mental and physical function and associated impacts on various types of bacteria. Now, I'm the first to admit the mouse brain, while it's still a mammalian brain and has basic structures and pathways that are somewhat analogous to more advanced brains uh, like those we have in our heads. Uh, it's, it's a crude association at best. Uh, the water maze testing is a way to see how the mice are able to remember how to find water by negotiating a maze a certain way. So admittedly a very crude way of measuring cognitive function and uh, seeing how dietary changes can affect it. The research was published in a recent issue of the journal Neuroscience. Now it is increasingly clear uh, from previous research like we talked about that our gut bacteria or the microbiota can communicate with the brain. Bacteria can release compounds that act as neurotransmitters that stimulate sensory nerves or the immune system and affect a wide range of biological functions. Researchers are not sure just what messages are being sent, but they are tracking down the pathways and the effects. Mice have proven to be a particularly good model for studies relevant to humans on such topics as aging, spatial memory, obesity, and other issues. Now in this research, after just four weeks on a high-fat or a high-sugar diet, the performance of mice on various tests of mental and physical function began to drop compared to animals on a normal diet. One of the most pronounced changes was in what researchers call cognitive flexibility. The impairment of this cognitive flexibility in the study was very strong. Think about driving home on a route that's very familiar to, to you, something that you're used to doing every day. Then one day that road is closed and you suddenly have to find a new way home. This entails being able to use cognitive flexibility or being able to have cognitive flexibility. Now, a person with high levels of cognitive flexibility would immediately adapt to the change, determine the next best route home, and remember to use the same route the following morning, all with little problem. With impaired flexibility, it might be a long, slow, and stressful way home. This study was done with young mice which ordinarily would have a healthier biological system 
that's better able to resist pathological influences from their microbiota. The findings might be even more pronounced with older mice or humans with compromised intestinal systems. What's often referred to as the so-called Western diet, or foods that are high in fat, sugars, and simple carbohydrates, has been linked to a range of chronic illnesses in the United States, including the obesity epidemic and an increased incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Well, let's uh, finish our thoughts on this research, and then we'll get to a couple more articles about potential dietary issues relating to the brain and mental health. So we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Our current topic is how a high-fat or high-sugar diet causes bacterial changes in our gut, which in turn makes us less able to think clearly and adapt to changing situations. Now, we've known for a long time that too much fat and sugar are not good for you, of course. This research suggests that fat and sugar are altering your healthy bacterial systems, and that's one of the reasons those foods aren't good for you. It's not just that the food could be influencing your brain, but an interaction between the food and microbial changes. Well, again, you know, it's, it's not like there's advice from this study that isn't already obvious. Uh, it's, again, not a revelation that high-fat and or high-sugar diet are bad for you and that you ought not to eat that way. Uh, it's also far from... A revelation that it's not only bad for you physically to eat that way, but it's bad for you mentally and that your mood and cognitive functioning uh, would improve if you were not to eat that way. Uh, but I have to admit it is interesting that 
uh, <clears throat> we now see the potential mechanism for that uh, being mediated through our gut bacteria. And again, <clears throat> it's another study that tells us of the interconnections between the gut bacteria and the brain, and uh, perhaps again indicating someday, um, even if someone is not eating a diet high in fat and sugar, and they somehow have a problem with alteration in their gut bacteria, that treating them to improve the balance of their gut bacteria, perhaps with a probiotic, could improve their cognitive function. Uh, fascinating thought. Uh, I'll be sure to bring you more information on research like this as I see it come across. All right, so this next article is, uh, it proposes something that we might be able to eat that would have a positive effect on the brain. And when I see studies like this, well, eat this, it's good for your brain, uh, unless it's something that is obvious, like a general overall dietary approach, uh, like the diets we've talked about that are rich in fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, lean meats and fish, uh, low on processed meats, low on fast food. When it comes to specific foods, uh, sometimes those recommendations are not very reliable. So I saw this one and I thought, wow, this, uh, this could be getting a lot of attention. Let's take a closer look at it and uh, either debunk it or find out, wow, this is something really good to know. You should try eating this. It's New Zealand black currants. Now, um, let's consider the source of this research right off the bat. It comes from the New Zealand Institute for Plant and Food Research. All right, so even though it doesn't sound like it's a commercial interest, it certainly is suspect that it would be somewhat self-serving. Nonetheless, let's see what they found. Um, just to sum up, they found that New Zealand black currants are good for keeping us mentally young and agile, which uh, is a finding that could have potential in managing the mental decline associated with aging populations, or even helping people with brain disorders such as Parkinson's disease or depression. <clears throat> the research uh, apparently has shown that New Zealand black currants are good for keeping us mentally young and agile, a finding that could have potential in managing these mental declines, as I said. It was conducted by scientists at the Plant and Food Research Center in New Zealand in collaboration with a university in the UK. And it showed that compounds found in New Zealand black currants increased mental performance indicators such as accuracy, attention, and mood. Now, the study also showed that juice from a specific New Zealand black currant type, the black adder, also reduced the activity of a family of enzymes called monoamine oxidases, which regulate serotonin and dopamine concentrations 
in the brain. These chemicals are known to affect mood and cognition and are the focus for treatments of both neurodegenerative symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease and mood disorders, including stress and anxiety. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to inhibiting the enzymes, the monoamine oxidases, monoamine oxidase inhibitors were the first antidepressants. Uh, in fact, this is how the idea of treating depression with medication was discovered. Uh, <clears throat> there were patients in tuberculosis sanatoriums in the late 40s and early 50s who were taking uh, tuberculosis antibiotics, which by coincidence, uh, one of which ipronizid, happened to also be a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And these people who, by all accounts, were quite ill with tuberculosis were happy and giddy and dancing. And so the doctors were like, what's going on here? And this is how the discovery that the ipronizid with its monoamine oxidase inhibition was also an antidepressant. Uh, so really, this means the black currants or the juice thereof may not only be good for cognitive function, but mood as well. Uh, the research was published online in a recent issue of the Journal of Functional Foods. <clears throat> Participants in the study, 36 healthy adults between ages 18 and 35, consumed a 250 milliliter drink prior to conducting a set of demanding mental performance assessments. The participants consumed either a sugar and taste matched placebo with no black currant, an anthocyanin enriched New Zealand black currant extract, or a cold pressed juice from the New Zealand black currant. The assessment showed that after consuming the enriched drink or just the juice, attention and mood were improved while mental fatigue was reduced. In addition, blood tests showed that the activity of the monoamine oxidase enzymes was strongly decreased after consuming the juice, indicating the potential for compounds found in the especially in the black adder type New Zealand black currants, as a functional food ingredient to support brain health or managing the symptoms of disorders like Parkinson's disease. All right, well, hold the phone. Again, uh, the way the research was conducted, with a very, very small amount of subjects, and the fact that it was sponsored by the agency who breeds this one particular type of New Zealand black currant um, makes the findings all highly suspect. So I would not run out and try to find New Zealand black adder black currants. If you could, they probably would be very expensive. Um, you know, a highly specialized imported item like that. Um, <clears throat> I would not try to import them directly from New Zealand. 
I would not try to find other types of black currants you should eat or their juice or buy any black currant related supplements. Just hold the phone. First of all, the fact that they would see a noticeable effect in cognitive function right after drinking the juice, I don't know. Um, I think that's quite a bit to ask. And uh, until there's research done on this in an independent fashion uh, conducted by research who, researchers who have no interest uh, in anything to do commercially with the product and were not directly involved in the development of the product, and that research would be conducted in the classical, scientifically sound way, a double-blind study, meaning neither the researchers nor the subjects know who's drinking what, and also controlled by a placebo, meaning uh, <clears throat> they could get either the real black currant drink or a placebo drink, and again, neither the researchers nor the subjects would know. Uh, until we see that, uh, yeah, don't don't rush out to be buying these black currants or drinking the juice. Um, there was a similar fad not too long ago when it where it concerned tart cherries and tart cherry juice that was supposed to prevent Alzheimer's, uh, supposed to improve cognitive function. The bottom line is that berries, or, or all kinds of fruits, but especially berries, we know are very good for you, especially your brain. This is not news. This is not a revelation. But it's not like there's some super food or beverage that you're going to drink it down and then, boom, instantly, you're going to feel and function better. Um, I promise you that's way too much to ask. So whether you want to eat black currants or whether you want to eat strawberries or blueberries or blackberries or raspberries, by all means, go out and buy berries. Press them to make juice yourself if you want. Don't buy the juice. It's much better to make it from the fresh fruit. We know that all of these berries and other types of fresh fruits are rich in healthy antioxidants. They're good for brain function. But it's a question of having them in your diet on a regular basis, not just when you eat them or drink their juice that you're going to feel and function better. But as part of a healthy diet, yes, berries definitely uh, should be in there and they definitely will help with mood and with cognitive function. Uh, so this is a good illustration of how you can't take media reports about research into mental health issues seriously unless you know the background. All right, we have another commercial break. We'll be right back with more after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, another article having to do with some sort of relationship between food and mental health. Now, this one is a little bit unusual. Researchers found decreased social anxiety among young adults who eat fermented foods. Psychologists have traditionally looked to the mind to help people living with mental health issues, but a recent study shows that the stomach may also play a key role suggesting that, like the other things we've talked about tonight and on other shows, you are what you eat, that old adage is more than just a cliché. Now, um, a little bit of background on social anxiety for those of you who are not necessarily familiar with what that is. Social anxiety, or the, the technical medical term social phobia, this is where people have an excessive pathological and even irrational fear that they are being judged or scrutinized in a negative way by others in social situations or even just being out in public. And it also includes symptoms such as being, again, excessively and even irrationally afraid that they might do or say something embarrassing. And while these tend to be very shy and introverted people, let's be very clear that unlike some of the criticisms leveled at um, organized psychiatry and psychology, the diagnosis of social anxiety disorder or social phobia is not simply an inappropriate medicalization of uh, shy personality. Someone who is shy by nature is not uh, going to uh, have the issues of uh, this constant excessive irrational fear 
of being judged or scrutinized negatively or that they will say or do something embarrassing. So there is quite a difference between someone who is simply shy but functions just fine in social situations and someone who has such terrible fear of these situations that they literally experience extreme anxiety attacks, um, <clears throat> have to leave these situations, or very often go out of their way to avoid being in these situations. In extreme and severe cases, social anxiety can be so bad that it's rendering someone homebound, that they cannot bear to leave their house and be around other people. Um, <clears throat> there are certainly, uh, you know, along the spectrum of severity, much, much milder forms of social anxiety, and um, <clears throat> it would include forms of social anxiety that are confined to just specific situations. Uh, a common example of this is that someone would do fine in terms of being in social situations, uh, even with a lot of strangers around, but when it comes to public speaking, then they're the center of attention and forget it. That's where they, that's what specifically arouses their anxiety. Um, so with that background, let's take a look at this study here that found a possible connection between fermented foods which contain probiotics. That's the key point here. That's the thing about the fermented foods, uh, that they contain probiotics. The connection between those foods and social anxiety. <clears throat> the researchers found that young adults who eat more fermented foods have fewer social anxiety symptoms, with the effect being the greatest among those at genetic risk for social anxiety disorder, as measured by the personality trait neuroticism. Now, the journal Psychiatry Research um, had uh, published this study back uh, in August, and <clears throat> it is likely that the probiotics in their fermented foods are favorably changing the environment in the gut and changes in the gut bacteria in turn influence social anxiety. Uh, again, it's like the other article we talked about before, it's absolutely fascinating that microorganisms in your gut can influence your mind, uh, but even more uh, interesting that it's not just a general sense of depression or anxiety or mental well-being, but a very specific type of anxiety, no less. Now, the researchers designed a questionnaire that was included in a mass testing tool, and they interviewed about 700 students. The questionnaire asked the students about the fermented foods that they ate over the past 30 days. It also looked at other factors which could influence the findings, such as how often they exercise and the average consumption of fruits and vegetables so that the researchers could control for healthy habits outside of fermented food intake. The main finding was that individuals who had consumed more fermented foods had reduced social anxiety, but that was qualified by an interaction 
with neuroticism. What that means is that the relationship was strongest among people that were high in neuroticism. Okay, now let's pause here and clarify something. I don't want this to be confusing because on the one hand I was very careful to say that social anxiety is near, merely the medicalization uh, or the creation of an illness of a rather benign personality trait of shyness. However, um, researchers do find a positive correlation between the personality trait of neuroticism and those with social anxiety disorder. Now, <clears throat> the secondary finding was that more exercise was related to reduced social anxiety. No surprise there. We all know that exercise reduces stress um, and anxiety of any type. Although the researchers were pleased to see the findings so clearly support their hypothesis about the fermented foods, this study is just the first in a series they have planned to continue exploring the mind-gut connection, including another examination of the data to see whether a correlation exists between fermented food intake and autism symptoms. The researchers will also soon create an experimental version of the study, and without doing that, they can't make a causative connection between eating fermented foods and reduced social anxiety. In other words, <clears throat> this is not an experiment per se. They didn't set out to say, okay, well, uh, this group is just going to eat um, one particular diet, maybe without any fermented foods, and this other group is going to eat a diet enriched with a lot of fermented foods and see a difference. So, you know, all they did was track uh, the reported intake of fermented foods. So, in order to really see the effect, they have to act, conduct an experiment where they um, <clears throat> see the effect of a different diet. Now, research over the past several years has increasingly supported a close relationship between nutrition and mental health. This study shows that young adults who are prone towards anxiety report less social anxiety if they frequently consume fermented foods with probiotics. These initial results highlight the possibility that social anxiety may be alleviated through very low-risk nutritional interventions. Although research uh, further along these lines is certainly needed to determine whether increasing probiotic consumption directly causes a reduction in social anxiety. Well, there you go. Um, I know those of you listening to this are probably curious uh, as to, well, what exactly were these people eating? Um, the article does not mention that. Uh, so I really can't just sort of tell you, okay, well, try eating this. It might help with your social anxiety. Uh, but again, it was published in uh, an issue this past summer of the journal Psychiatry Research. It came from uh, the University of William & Mary and also University of Maryland. Uh, and again, it's about decreased 
social anxiety among young adults who eat fermented foods. It's definitely uh, along the lines of fruits and vegetables. Um, <clears throat> and uh, again, just whether they're fresh or, you know, whether um, uh, they're fermented foods, uh, it's good to have those types of things in your diet. All right. Well, so that was a few different articles uh, about the links between diet and gut bacteria and mental health and specific foods, uh, including along the way how I like to debunk things that uh, sound too good to be true. So, again, beware of overhyped things like the New Zealand black currants. Um, and, uh, but, but, yes, um, definitely the take-home message from all these articles is continue to include fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, berries, um, <clears throat> fermented foods along those lines as well may be helpful and uh, stay tuned for more research going forward into the connections between gut bacteria, diet, and the mind, and uh, possibly even using probiotics um, to treat mental health issues. Now, <clears throat> as of yet, it really is too soon to say that anyone should just take a probiotic in order to feel well mentally and emotionally, especially since there are so many on the market and they have uh, a lot of conflicting claims. Uh, so it's hard to make a recommendation that you do that. Um, I would say let's wait and see if more definitive and more specific information comes to light as to which types of probiotics seem to help more with mood, uh, including depression or anxiety, than any others. Um, of course, if it's recommended to you that you take one for other reasons, such as gastrointestinal symptoms, by all means, have at it, take it as per your doctor's recommendation, and who knows, it may help your mood as well. All right, another commercial break. We'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's podcast, an artificial neuron mimics the function of human cells. A neuron is a brain cell. Scientists at Sweden's Karolinska Institute a leading information source for all things neuroscience, have managed to build a fully functional neuron by using organic bioelectronics. This artificial neuron, again brain cell, contains no living parts, but is capable of mimicking the function of a human nerve cell and communicate in the same way as our own neurons do. I saw this article, I thought to myself, this is unbelievable, this is the stuff of science fiction. So I decided I had to take a closer look and talk to you about it. Now, neurons are isolated from each other and communicate with the help of chemical signals, commonly called neurotransmitters, or signal substances. Inside a neuron, these chemical signals are converted to an electrical action potential, or voltage change, which travels along the axon, or the body of the neuron, until it reaches the end of the brain cell, where there is a gap between it and the next brain cell called the synapse. Uh, That's why they say the neurons are isolated from each other, because there's this tiny little gap. And what happens is the chemical neurotransmitters, or signal transducers, if you will, travel across the synapse to the next brain cell, which then triggers the electrical signal to be propagated down the pathway from one brain cell to the next. It's converted to the release of chemical signals, which go cell to cell by diffusion and thus relay the signal to the next nerve cell and the next and the next and so on. Now to date, the primary technique for neuronal stimulation in human cells is based on electrical stimulation. But scientists at the Swedish Medical Nanoscience Center at the Karolinska Institute have now created an organic 
bioelectronic device that is capable of receiving chemical signals which it can then relay to human cells. Their artificial neuron is made of conductive polymers and it functions like a human neuron. The sensing component of the artificial neuron senses a change in chemical signals in one dish and translates this into an electrical signal. This electrical signal is next translated into the release of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine in a second dish whose effect on living human cells can be monitored. The research team hoped that their innovation, which was presented in the journal Biosensors and Bioelectronics, will improve treatments for neurological disorders which currently rely on traditional electrical stimulation. The new techniques make it possible to stimulate neurons based on specific chemical signals received from different parts of the body. In the future, this may help physicians to bypass damaged nerve cells and restore neural functioning. Wouldn't that be incredible if this technology could be used to repair damage to brain cells from any number of brain diseases, stroke, Parkinson's disease, even dementia. Um, you know, it's hard to overstate the possibilities, uh, which are endless if this can be further refined and developed. They would like to miniaturize the device to enable implantation into the human body in the future, by adding the concept of wireless communication, the biosensor could be placed in one part of the body and trigger release of neurotransmitters at distant locations. Using such auto-regulated sensing and delivery, or possibly a remote control, new and exciting opportunities for future research and treatment of neurological disorders can be envisaged. Well, clearly this has quite a long way to go. A lot more work and development <clears throat> will have to be done, but uh, truly this is uh, potentially just positively uh, a breakthrough of all breakthroughs. Um, uh, if any kind of bioelectronic uh, device such as this could uh, bypass damaged brain cells or uh, somehow compensate for them um, and alleviate symptoms uh, of uh, neurological diseases. Um, you know, I mentioned stroke, Parkinson's disease, dementia, perhaps even uh, <clears throat> damage from concussions. Um, you know, depending on how this goes when it's further developed, possibilities really are, are endless and uh, potentially astounding. Uh, so certainly look forward to hearing more about this. And again, the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, they've always been uh, considered on the cutting edge 
of neuroscience. So it's no surprise that this type of innovation would be coming out of that center. Be sure to keep you up to date on that as uh, I see more articles written about it. <clears throat> Next up, researchers identify a new spectrum disorder called Alpim syndrome. That's A-L-P-I-M. And we'll get to what that stands for in a moment. That's an acronym for certain types of symptoms. And they say that characterizing and describing this syndrome clarifies the relationship between anxiety and physical disorders. The relationship between mental and physical health is well established, but when mental and physical illnesses co-occur, patients' accounts of physical illness are sometimes arbitrarily discredited or dismissed by physicians. That is very true, and sadly, uh, it's not enough that people have to deal with the stigma of the general public about mental health symptoms, but also from certain physicians. Researchers at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, have documented a high rate of association between panic disorder and four domains of physical illness. The research could alter how physicians and psychiatrists view the boundaries within and between psychiatric and medical disorders. Patients who appear to have certain physical illnesses for which there is no detectable medical cause and which physicians may consider to be imagined by the patient may instead have a genetic propensity to develop a series of real related illnesses. The researchers found a high correlation between panic disorder, bipolar disorder, and physical illness with significantly higher prevalence of certain physical illnesses among patients with panic disorder. Panic disorder itself may be a predictor for a number of physical conditions previously considered unrelated to mental conditions. The study was published in a recent issue of the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences. The researchers proposed the existence of a spectrum syndrome comprising a core anxiety disorder and four related domains for which they have coined the term, the acronym ALPIM. A stands for anxiety disorder, mostly panic disorder. L stands for ligamentous laxity, that is joint hypermobility syndrome, scoliosis, double jointedness, mitral valve prolapse, and easy bruising. Now, mitral valve prolapse, I should tell you, has long been associated with panic disorder, but it has nothing to do with the effect on cardiac functioning. It's just a random association that appears quite a bit. The P stands for pain, such as in fibromyalgia, migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, prostatitis, cystitis. The I stands for immune disorders, including hypothyroidism, asthma, nasal allergies, chronic fatigue syndrome, and the M stands for mood disorders, such as major depression, bipolar disorder. Two-thirds of the patients in the study with mood disorder had diagnosable bipolar disorder, and most of those patients had lost their response to antidepressants. Not surprising given that they shouldn't give people with bipolar disorder antidepressants in the first place. Now, this 
proposed Alpim syndrome contains significant elements of previously described spectrum disorders. Primary contribution is to add novel elements and groupings and to shed light on how they overlap. And there was a high prevalence of physical disorders among patients with panic disorder compared to the general population. They found the joint laxity in almost 60% of patients um, <clears throat> compared to 10 to 15% in the general population. The fibromyalgia was in 80% of the subjects compared to only 2 to 5% in the general population. And allergic rhinitis in over 70% of the subjects, whereas its prevalence is approximately 20% in the general population. The researchers' argument is that delineations in medicine that can be arbitrary and some disorders that are viewed as multiple disparate and independent conditions may best be viewed as a single spectrum disorder with a common genetic etiology. Patients deserve a more informed scientific understanding of spectrum disorders. The disorders that are part of the Alpin syndrome may be better understood if viewed as a common entity. I think this is very worthy research. Uh, certainly there's a lot of stigma about fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Many physicians tend to discount these symptoms as simple, simply uh, a mental disorder without any physical basis. But they list all these chronic physical problems that are difficult to diagnose and treat and uh, they're correlated with mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Um, of course, the common denominator that may tie all these together, inflammation as well as genetics. Well, that's going to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it informative. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.